You guys can have a seat, and you may be able to hear it in my voice, but uh, I had uh, several friends run the New York City Half Marathon today, and uh, I cheered a little too loud. I forgot that I had to get up and public speak in the afternoon, so bear with the, uh, the, the horse uh, voice that I have today. But nevertheless, uh, my question today for us is this, where do you turn and in whom do you trust when you feel out of control? Where do you turn and in whom do you trust when you feel out of control? When life is out of your control, how do you respond? Because the way we respond to uncontrollable circumstances actually has profound effects on the kind of life that we will live. In fact, the way we respond to circumstances beyond our control actually has a direct effect to our quality of life, the quality of the life that we will live. Um, it, it, the way we respond to circumstances, it affects the trajectory of our lives, it affects our relationships, it determines even our mood, our happiness. And I often tell my daughters, you can't control how people act, you can only control how you react. And there's many ways that we can respond when life is out of control for us. There is the Clark Griswold way. Anybody? Uh, from the vacation movies, uh, the best one is Christmas Vacation. I will not debate that because it's not up for debate. But the Clark Griswold way to, that we respond to circumstances outside of our control, if you have seen the vacation movies, Clark Griswold is a, a well-meaning father who loves to plan family vacations for his family, and he plans them down to the smallest detail. And anybody who's ever planned a family vacation, do they ever go according to plan? Never. And then in these comedy movies, they just kind of level it up a notch, and I mean, his whole plan goes completely out of control, and the, the, the comedy of the movies are watching him respond when his plans go out of control. And what does he do? He levels up, he doubles down, and he grasps for more control, and in the end, he makes things worse. Another way, uh, when we face circumstances outside of our controls, we can become very nihilistic. This is the Metallica way. Nothing matters. Nothing else matters. We become bitter, we become cynical, and we begin to believe that life is meaningless. If you think Metallica is too lowbrow, and maybe you're an English major or whatever, this is the Camus or the Nietzsche way. This is meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. And then there's the Riptide way, which is to surrender. If you, if you know, if you're ever at the beach and you get caught in a riptide, the worst thing you can do is fight against your circumstances. If you try to fight against the riptide, the riptide will win and it will pull you under. The way you beat a riptide, if you get pulled into one, is you relax and let the riptide spit you out into calm waters. And so one of our, our other option is to surrender when our circumstances are outside of our control, to accept that sometimes circumstances cannot be changed. This is one of the core teachings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it has helped millions of people over the years because when we try to fight our circumstances, we always lose. We always lose. But here's the addition that we have. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but as followers of Jesus, we have an added component, and that's not just that we surrender. We don't merely surrender, but we trust. And in whom do we trust? We trust that we serve and we believe in and we follow a God who is in control of all circumstances. And some of you are facing frustrating, uh, unpreventable, 
and unpredictable circumstances that are totally outside of your control right now. And you're wondering, how do I, how, what do I do? And today, you know, we've been studying the gospel of John for over a year now on and off. And today we're looking at John chapter 18. And this is the account of Jesus being arrested in his final days. We're in Lent right now and we're leading up to the cross and to the resurrection. And this is a moment where Jesus is arrested. This is where everything seemed completely out of control. If you read through the gospels, Jesus is so in control all the time and the disciples knew it. That's why they followed him. But then here's this moment where at least to our eyes and at least to the disciples' eyes, it looked like everything was out of control. Jesus, though he was completely innocent, he was being violently and unjustly arrested. But as we read this account, I want you to ask the question, who's really in control? Is anyone in control? And the question we ask is, who's in control here? So I, what I want to do today is I don't have like sermon points that we want to do. I just want to walk through the text of the scriptures and then we'll kind of land on some uh, application as we get through it. So I just want to begin in John chapter 18, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words. Now, what words is John referring to? He's referring to Jesus's final meal with his disciples in the upper room. These words, uh, what, what's included in these, these words, it's called the farewell discourse. Well, these words include Jesus washing the disciples' feet and saying to them that he came to serve, not to be served, and he washes their feet. These words also include, he told them that one of them will betray him. He said, one of you is going to betray me. This is also where he told them, hey, I'm going to leave, I'm going to die but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be better that he comes. And then he, this is, the, these words include when he prayed uh, to his father, the, the high priestly prayer, when he prayed, glorify me so that I may glorify you, Father. This is where he prayed for his disciples to protect them from the evil one and to sanctify them. This is where he prayed for you and me that we would be as a church one as he is one. So Jesus now, his sermons, his miracles, and now his final meal with his disciples, he's in a place where he has said all that needs to be said. His hour has come. It's his time now. He gets up from the table, walks out of the upper room, and begins his journey to the cross. And it says that he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Have you guys ever seen the movie, Remember the Titans? You know how uh, Denzel Washington, the coach, takes the athletes, takes his football players to Gettysburg because he knows that when, when you take, you can teach valuable lessons when you go to significant places. And Jesus is, I don't think that it's coincidence here that the places he goes to have incredible symbolic nature to them. So the first thing we see is that this is a picture here of the Mount of Olives taken from the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. So um, I actually took a picture from the Mount of Olives, but it was a selfie, so I didn't want to show you that one when I was in Israel. But if you look, okay, so you have the upper room. This is where Jesus has been spending his time with his disciples over the last couple of chapters. This is where he's with his disciples. Well, they leave the upper room, and then they, um, they walk across the, I'm gonna show you guys, okay? So they walk across, they walk down to Gethsemane. This is, where, this is the garden that Jesus is going to. And so they have to walk down this ravine, through this valley, and then up to the other side of the Mount of Olives where Gethsemane sort of sits at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. Now, this right here, this is the Dome of the Rock, but right about here is where the temple was. 
And uh, so what would happen, this, remember, this is the week of the Feast of Passover. And so all, uh, all the Jewish people from the surrounding areas would have come into Jerusalem for this. There would have been thousands and thousands of people, and they all, every family would have brought a lamb with them. Now, if you got kids, you know, Dad, why'd they bring the lamb? Uh, bad news. They brought the lamb so that the lamb would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. So every, every Jewish family anywhere near Jerusalem would travel with a the lamb. They would bring the lamb up to the temple, and then they would take it for ritual sacrifice. And so you're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lambs being slaughtered in this week. And the, the, uh, the Jewish people actually, from the temple, they actually built a drain system that ran from the temple into the Kidron Valley. And it ran into the brook Kidron. And so when Jesus crosses the, the, the ravine with his disciples, it is likely that that brook was stained red with the blood of lambs. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think Jesus, there's a symbolic piece to that, that Jesus is walking through the blood of the Passover lambs. And he's showing his disciples, they're not, they don't get it right then. They're too, you know, their, head, their skulls are way too thick in this moment, but they're going to know one day that he was showing them that I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. I'm the one who will be, I'm the ultimate Passover lamb who will be slaughtered for the sins of the people once and for all. But then he goes to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And now when you think of garden, you may be thinking, thinking of Brooklyn Botanical, right? But this is not cherry blossoms and orchids. This is an olive grove. Uh, and, and olives were planted and they were farmed for one reason, and that was to be crushed, to be turned into olive oil. That's how you make olive oil is you crush the olives. And if you remember in the other Gospels, Jesus went to this garden, and this is where he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus, there's symbolism there in the olive grove. Jesus is going to be, uh, the, the book of Isaiah says, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that will bring us peace will be upon him. Jesus is going to the garden. Like an olive, he will be crushed. And then there's also the symbolism of in a garden, remember, first page of the Bible, right? A garden was created. And it was in a garden where a man named Adam failed but it's, he failed to be obedient to God, but it's in this garden where Jesus will be obedient to his father. And he, the book of Hebrews says that through Adam, through one man, death entered the world, but through Jesus, resurrection comes into the world. And so Jesus is in total control in this moment. He is, I mean, he's in control of the place, like Denzel Washington bringing a bunch of football players to Gettysburg. He is teaching them a lesson by the very ground that they're standing on. So I ask you, who's in control here? Jesus is in control right here. He's, he's in control. But then look at what verse 2 says. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, and pay attention, having procured a band of soldiers, that's Romans, some officers from the chief priests, that's Sadducees, and the Pharisees. And they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You've got the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Romans. These guys did not like each other, but they're unified together to take down Jesus. All of the authority and the power is coming and closing in on Jesus. All of the authority and the power structures in Jerusalem have now unified together to close in on Jesus and the disciples. Who has the power in this moment? It sure seems like the authorities and the powers do. 
And not only do they come with authority, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the, the, the guards, the soldiers, but they come with weapons, which tells you that they were expecting a fight. They weren't expecting this to be peaceful. And you have to realize how combustible Jerusalem was and is, or is, but also was at that time, especially during Passover week. Every Jewish person was in town. And the big political issue among Jews at that time was Rome was occupying Jerusalem. And, every, and they were charging exorbitant taxes. They were oppressing the Jewish people. And this was a big conversation. About, I mean, this was the number one political issue. And all the different sects of Judaism all had differing ideas of how to approach Roman occupation. So you had some who just preferred isolating themselves and becoming a religious community. We can't do anything about this situation. The Roman, I mean, the Romans are brutal. So what we're going to do is we're not going to step on their toes. We're just going to create a little re religious community off to the side. We're not going to bother them. We're going to keep to ourselves and we're going to do our thing so that they don't bother us. But then you had another group that like the tax collectors who said, you know what? The best thing to do is not try to fight this. If you can't beat them, join them. And so the, you had a, a sect of Judaism that said, hey, we're, we're just going to power up. We're going to team up with the Romans so that not only do we not get persecuted, but that we can actually get some of the benefits of Roman occupation. And then you had another group that was the zealots. And they were ready for a violent overthrow of the Roman people. And so there's all these groups in town all at one time. And so political fervor is high. Religious fervor is high. Anything could happen. Um, several years ago, um, I was taking my kids to Sesame Place outside of Philadelphia. Um, but if you've ever dri uh, been on a road trip with kids before a theme park, if they fall asleep, what do you do? You're not going to wake them up. You know when kids are little, when the kids are asleep, you're like, I'm not going to wake the kids up. I'm going to let them nap it out. So we thought, all right, we're going to let these kids nap it out. So we decided to drive to Philly, and we thought we'll just drive, you know, around downtown Philly, see, see the sights from our minivan. Well, we got there, and what we didn't realize, what it was, it was the week, this was 2016, this was the... Um, the week of the Democratic National Convention. And if you remember 2016, this was when Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, they, were, they were convinced that Hillary had stolen the election from them and they were, there was an attempt for them to kind of take back the election in their minds. And so we kind of found ourselves in downtown Philadelphia and you had, I mean, thousands of Bernie Sanders supporters and thousands of Hillary Clinton supporters all in downtown Philadelphia. And they were all, you could tell they were all angry. You know what I mean? Like there was political fervor was high and it was a little unpredictable. And I got a little nervous because I was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to play out. And I'm in a minivan in non-moving traffic with some children. I just want to get out of here. I'm not a big, I don't like politics, you know, getting crazy. I just want to get out of there. But so we all know this political fervor can make people and crowds unpredictable. But then if you sprinkle religion in there, it can make things totally volatile. And that's exactly what was happening in Jerusalem and in the garden this night. Everyone's tense. Everyone's scared. Everyone is uncertain. This is why they come with weapons. This is why they come with torches. The guards were armed, which means they were afraid. The priests and the, Sadduce the, the Pharisees were indignant. Judas was probably a little uneasy. I mean, you can imagine he's feeling all sorts of feelings. And the disciples are in shock. Because they, 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 they thought Jesus was going to destroy these dudes. They didn't think he was going to get arrested. This moment felt unpredictable. And everyone is panicking except one person. 
The, the one person who in our minds should be panicking, Jesus. He was calm, he was steady, he was non-anxious. Who's in control here? Jesus, it says, verse 4, knowing all that would happen to him. He knew all that would happen to him. He came forward. Jesus steps forward and says to them, whom do you seek? Now, interesting note, the very first words Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John were spoken to Andrew when he said, whom do you seek? Andrew was seeking Jesus to find life, but these men are seeking Jesus to bring death. But notice this, this is important, Jesus steps forward. Judas does not hand Jesus over. Jesus willingly steps forward. Jesus is not a victim here. Jesus is in total control. He steps forward. Yes, he was betrayed by Judas, but he was not a victim of Judas's betrayal. He steps forward. He's in control here. He's in total control. And, they, and they, they, he said, whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, well, I am he. And John adds this little note. He says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, there's a lot packed into this statement, I am he. Uh, they, they, I mean, there's the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus has said these words before, ego, ami. John 4, 26, the Samaritan woman says, who is this Messiah you're talking about? He says, I'm he. There's John 8, 58. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am he. Not to mention the I am statements that Jesus speaks all throughout the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. But none of these I am he's are more significant than what we see in John chapter 13, verse 19. Remember, John makes a point to say that when Jesus said, I am he, Judas was standing right there. Why would he say that? Because earlier that evening, just a few hours earlier, Jesus was eating dinner with his disciples, Judas included. And Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, 19, he said, hey, one of you who is sitting here at the table with me will betray me tonight. And he said, I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. <laughs> I mean, he was in total control all night long. And these words, I am he, they were ringing in Judas's ear when, Jesus, when they said, who are you seeking? And, he said, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, that's me. I am he. How do you think Judas felt when he heard these words? How do you think the disciples felt when they heard his words? They're like, Jesus he said this was going to happen. Who's in control here? And not only when Jesus says, I am he, does Judas kind of get a little uneasy, but notice this, verse 6, it says, Then when Jesus said to them, I am he, they, meaning the guards and the, the Pharisees and the, the chief priests, they drew back and they fell to the ground. What's going on here? When Jesus says, I am he, something in the way that he says this causes the powers and the authorities of the world the guards, the priests, and the Pharisees to draw back and fall to their knees and fall to the ground. It makes me think of Isaiah and Ezekiel. When they were in the presence of God, they fall to their faces. This is a sign. All throughout the Gospel of John, John, John called, what we call miracles, John calls them signs. And, and, and these, these signs point to something. They point to Jesus being God. 
And so you have Jesus calming the storm, turning water to wine. He's showing that he is the one who has power over the natural world. When Jesus heals the sick and raises the dead, he's showing that he has power over the physical world. So we don't have to fear nature, we don't have to fear the physical world, but we also don't have to fear rulers and kingdoms because when he says, I am he, the rulers and the authorities of this world fall to their knees. Who's in control here? They fall down at the sound of his name. Jesus establishes his authority in this moment. And then he asks them again, he says, Who, whom do you seek? They said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So what we kind of see is that they, had, they were arresting the disciples. And Jesus says, well, if it's me you're seeking, let them go. Just take me. And then verse 9 says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken earlier that night, Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Jesus just prayed in the high priestly prayer, God, I have not lost any of those you've given to me. And Jesus is reemphasizing this point again. He will not lose. He is the good shepherd, and he will not lose one of his sheep on this night. He's the one that's going to lay down his life, no one else. Jesus was the, the he, was, he was ensuring at the last moment that his disciples would not lose their lives even as he lost his. He is fulfilling his word to protect his disciples even as he's arrested. And right here, the authorities are arresting Jesus, his entire crew, and Jesus says, if it's me you're seeking, let these men go. Again, I ask, who's in control here? More than that, there's gospel significance here. Jesus is saying, I'm going in their place. Let them go and take me. It's me for them. That's the deal, Jesus says. And this was always the way. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The plan was always that Jesus would trade places with us that he would be arrested, that he would be unjustly crucified, that he would die the death that we deserve so that our chains would fall off. And he sets the disciples free. Who's in control here? And then verse 10, you know, Peter always had trouble with Jesus being in control. Peter always felt like it was his job to protect Jesus. And so he, 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 he kind of went Clark Griswold here where he's trying to level up and he's trying to double down and grasp at control. In verse 10, it says, then Simon Peter having a sword, he wasn't supposed to have that, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. He wasn't going for his ear. He was going for the throat and he missed and he got the ear. And we're told that the servant's name was Malchus. It says, so Jesus said to Peter, other gospels tell us that Jesus picked up Malchus's ear, put it back on and was like, hey man, go on. But he says to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given to me? Jesus is saying, Peter, I've told you again and again and again and again, I'm going to die for your sins. Surrender. Trust me. Stop trying to save me and save yourself. I am the one who's doing the saving, Peter. This was always the way. And Peter, and Jesus pulls Peter aside and he tells them, his, the one last time Jesus is saying, Peter, I've been trying to tell you this the whole time. I'm going to die in your place. And your job is not to do anything. It's to receive the death. So who's in control here? Ask yourself, who's in control? Jesus was in control to the location, 
to the fact that he was calm while everybody was anxious, to the fact that he was orchestrating this whole thing. When he said, I am he, he had already told them that he was going to say, I am he. And when he said, I am he, they knew that Judas was the one that betrayed him. And they knew that he was the one who was going to be the savior of the world. He speaks his name. The guards fall to their knees. Jesus protects his disciples from being arrested just as he had prayed earlier. And all the other gospels tell us that he heals Malchus's ear. Jesus was always in control of the situation. It looked like it was out of control, but Jesus was always in control. So what does that mean for you and me? Two points, and they're going to be quick, I promise. A theological point and a pastoral point. Something to teach you and something to comfort you. Something for you to believe about Jesus and then a way for you to see how that belief gives you comfort and peace. So here's the theological point. The cross was always the plan. The cross was always the plan. You know, it's a popular position in modern scholarship for people to say that, uh, to claim that the cross was, uh, people will say, you know, Jesus preached peace and he loved, but the cross was just, he just kind of got caught up in the system and he was executed. And so what happened was Jesus was a good guy, but he got executed unjustly, and he just kind of got caught up in this crazy system. And the disciples, after he was executed, you know, they, 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 they sort of made up a plan to say that the cross was a good thing and that Jesus died as an example of self-sacrifice and that they tried to spin the narrative of the cross to make the best of a bad situation. The problem with this is that it's just not true. It just isn't true. It's crucial that we recognize this theologically, that the cross was not an accident and that Jesus was not a victim. It was always the plan. It was not Jesus getting caught up in a system. It was no accident. On the second page of the Bible, <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, a child, an offspring will be born. And he says to the enemy, you will bruise his heel, meaning you might put a nail through his foot, but he will crush your head. See, the plan all along was for Jesus to defeat evil from the very beginning through an old rugged cross. The plan was that God would become a child, that he would grow into a man, that he would live the life we can never live, that he would be perfectly obedient, that he would be perfectly good and right and true and beautiful and that he would die for sinners at the hands of evil men and evil powers and he would triumph over that evil and he would usher in resurrection and new life in the world this was always the plan and it shouldn't have caught it didn't catch jesus by surprise and it shouldn't have caught the disciples by surprise because jesus told them about it all along and as we've studied the Gospel of John for the last year, it's been pointing to this moment from the very beginning. Jesus has been saying the whole time, my hour is coming. I will be lifted up. He wasn't talking about like lifted up like in a worship song. He was talking about lifted up on a cross. He told his disciples, in a little while, I'm going away. Jesus tried to tell them. They just, they could not bring themselves to understand this. Peter was trying to stop Jesus from doing it up until the very point, but it was always the plan. Jesus was not a victim from the very moment that humanity disobeyed God. Jesus, and we separated ourselves from God, from that very moment, Jesus had his eyes set on the cross like flint to bring us back to him and to redeem us. This is why Jesus was so calm when everybody else was anxious. Now, I mean, we know that Jesus felt fear. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. If there's any other way, he was afraid, yes, but he was not anxious. 
He was steady. He was calm. Christ, our sure and steady anchor, as the hymn says. Jesus was doing what he came to do. And what looked like chaos and unpredictability, what looked like tragedy, was the very reason Jesus came. All eternity had been building to this exact moment. Jesus would die a death that, we did not, that he didn't deserve so that we could go free. Just like Jesus said, just like they, they said to, when Jesus said, whom do you seek? And, and, and he said, well, then let them go. Jesus can stand before our enemies of sin, sickness, death, and Satan and say, let them go. Let them go. What are you seeking? Are you seeking to judge them for their sin? I've already taken it upon myself. Let them go. Jesus dies in our place so that we can go free. This was always the plan. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And this gives us hope because it means that even in the most chaotic and unpredictable and impossible circumstances where it seems like it's nothing but tragedy, it tells us that Jesus is always in control and that there can be purpose even in our, circum in our out of control circumstances. And this is the pastoral point I want to make to you, and that's this. God is always in control. And I know that sounds kind of trite, and that sounds like, like, that sounds like a platitude. God is in control, but it's true. That doesn't mean that bad things never happen. I've had plenty of bad things happen in my life. You've had plenty of bad. In this church, there are thousands of bad things that have happened. It doesn't, God is in control. It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen in your life. It doesn't... It doesn't even mean that God causes bad things. But it does mean that sometimes we live in a broken world and because of that, circumstances can go haywire and they can go out of our control. But we follow a God who calms the winds and the waves. And we follow a God who gives sight to the blind and heals the sick and he brings evil men to their knees at the sound of his name. Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion looked like a tragedy and a defeat, but they were merely a setup for his triumphant victory. And don't you know the disciples played this scene over and over and over in their heads for years and years and years? They probably thought, I mean, we were so scared in that moment. But looking back, we see how calm Jesus was. It's like he knew what he was doing all along. We thought the guards and the religious leaders had all the power in that moment. But Jesus was unfazed by them. We thought G Judas had ruined everything. We thought Judas had ruined the plan. But looking back, we realized Judas was part of the plan all along. We thought everything was falling apart, but Jesus was executing the plan. He was in control the entire time. We tried to fight, but looking back, we should have simply trusted and surrendered. Because what came of that night is what has given us something to preach to the ends of the earth. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of flying to California with several of my pastor friends and got to spend two days with one of my ministry heroes, one of my you know, favorite pastors, authors. And uh, this is an older, seasoned pastor uh, whom I have the utmost respect. But in the last couple of years, this particular pastor has suffered a litany of chaotic and painful circumstances in his life. Um, circumstances that have ripped his family apart and brought tremendous pain into his life. And we had a chance to sit with him and just hear from him what God was teaching him. And he said, God has taught me three primary things during this season. And we're all, you know, on the edge of our seats. We're like, what? You know, this is a, a man we respect, and, but he's going through this horrendous thing. What, what has God taught him? 
And he said, I've learned that circumstances, first thing, circumstances are not a reliable foundation for our lives or for our faith. Our faith cannot be based on circumstances. Our happiness cannot be faith on, based on circumstances. Our lives cannot be based on circumstances. And he said, you know, adding to this point, he said, I have learned that there is no reason to fear. He said, because there's nothing that you can do with fear that you can't do better with trust. He says, there's nothing that you can't do, do with fear that you couldn't do better without it. Second thing he said is when chaos is unpreventable, I'm learning that renewal is still possible. This is a man who's had many of the relationships in his life completely ripped from his life, but yet he's seeing God put the pieces back together. And then he said, finally, he said, I've learned that there is no other book but the Bible. Guy's got a PhD, you know, and we're like, this is a guy who likes book, books. And he says, but I have learned that there is no other book but the Bible. And I, I, we asked him to elaborate on that. And he said, the Bible tells us, he said, there are a lot of great books in this world, and there are a lot of great books that can tell us what to do when, we're, when life is hard. He said, but the Bible tells us that from the very beginning of time, Jesus was calm he was steady, he had a mission, and he fulfilled that mission to the very end. That from the moment you and I first sinned, Jesus set his heart on redeeming you and me. And not only did he go the distance to redeem us, but he stepped out of the tomb and not just redeemed us from our sins, but he offers us brand new life. And he said, and in that resurrected life, he said, all the pain that this circumstantial world has given me, he said, will be renewed in the new heavens and new earth on that day when I stand before the one who is seated on the throne. And I say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And this man looked at us and he said, I've learned that we are not meant to carry the burden of outcomes. Don't we, we, we all carry the burden of outcomes on our shoulders, don't we? The burden of the outcomes of our lives, the outcomes of our children's lives, the outcomes of our church, the outcome of our, you know, uh, the world. And this, this guy, he said, we're not meant to carry the burden of outcomes because we can't control the outcomes. Only God can control those. This is what Jesus means when he says, I, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've got the outcomes, Jesus says, so you can rest. Let me take those burdens off of your shoulders. But what do we try to do? We try to be like Peter, swinging our swords until we get tired or until we chop somebody's ear off. But Jesus, in his grace and in his tenderness, just like he did with Peter, he wants to pull us aside and say, stop swinging your sword. Trust me. Surrender. I've got it under control. This is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus. Let me pray for you, Crossroads. God, your word, in just these 11 verses, we see just how in control you are. You're in control of our lives. You're in control of doctors, diagnoses. You are in control of pandemics. You're in control of budgets. You're in control of employment. You're in control of 
relationships. You're in control of our children. And so God, we, we know we're not meant to carry the burden of outcomes, but we try to. And so God, I pray that we would do as your word says and that we would cast our burdens unto you because you care for us. And God, would you relieve us of our burdens and would you show us that your yoke is easy and that your burden is light and in you there is rest for our weary souls. We can put our swords down and we can trust and we can surrender that you are bringing us to new life and to resurrection. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.